We are going to open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, and we, are two, we have two weeks left in our series on Exodus, and then we are done. And the last two weeks is a two-parter. This is part one, and next week is part two. That is how a two-parter works. I don't know why I just explained that to you, because you all probably know, but I did. Um, we are going to start a new series after that on rest. We're going to be talking about rest. Doesn't that sound nice? Uh, Pastor Dave and I are going to take turns. We're going to be teaching through for three weeks um, on, as we talk about rest and Sabbath and what that looks like and why we desperately need it and why we're so bad at it. So um, I would definitely look at, I mean, come on, it's going to be great. We're just going to, we'll take the chairs out. We'll just lay around and listen to Sermon on Rest. No, that would be super weird. Um, okay, so right now we're in Exodus 33. Now to catch you up to where we are, Moses, Israelites, they're out of Egypt. They're, they're we're wandering the wilderness. Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai. God has given him a lot of really detailed information about how to worship, about how to build a tabernacle, about what sacrifices to make, about uh, how the priests should dress, about who they are, about laws that they should follow, how they should live. And he has done all these things. The last week, we talked about the fact that God was so specific with them about how to worship. And they were like, nope, we'll just do it our own way. That's fine. And they built a golden cow. And they worship that instead, because that's obviously better, I guess. And God punished them for that. And he said, uh, you're not going to be my people anymore. This is how it's going to be. And the, the incredibly important thing that happened that we talked about last week was God forgave them. He said, I will be a gracious God. And from now on, uh, I will be known, you will be known as my people, the people who aren't just rescued, but the people who are forgiven by me. I'm not going to start over again with another group of people. I'm going to choose to show grace to you. And that is the way that God will relate to us moving forward. So that was a huge thing. What we're going to see this week is something like profound. It is a huge shift in the way the Israelites act. And it is one of the biggest shifts that we see in all of Scripture. Um, and so we're going to read the first five verses. I'll put them up on the screen of chapter 33 and then we'll stop. So the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now, this is huge, what's happening here, because for, for many of us, we don't, for those of you who know about Exodus, you don't know that this even happened, maybe. You go, but is there really a point where God said, okay, fine, you can have the promised land, you can have all these things I promised you, but you can't have me, and the people responded the way that they did. The reason that the people have, uh, have acted this way is because they have finally realized something about God. And it is huge, and it's what he's been trying to show them this whole time. They have finally realized that we can have all the things that God promises us, all these good, amazing things that we want from him. And if we don't have God, we have nothing. And that's their response. When God tells them this news that to them would have been good news in the past, they would have been like, great, 
Where do we sign? Good deal. This is what we wanted anyway. We wanted to be free just to do our own thing and have our own stuff and not have to worry about serving God. Instead, when he tells them, it says their response in verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. It was a disastrous word, and it caused them to mourn. The people have now learned something about God, and it is this. They can't live with him because of his holiness and his perfection, but they can't seem to live without him. They have arrived at this point where they're like, something that we often say of people in relationships and things, you can't live with them, but you can't live without them. It's almost like a necessary thing that they must have. A couple of weeks ago, um, Ellie, my wife, she said, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. This wasn't like a bad leaving. Uh, she said, I'm going to go. When you say it that way, it sounds so bad. Uh, no, okay, I'll back up. Uh, she said, uh, I'm going to go visit my family. Even that sounds kind of bad. Ellie decided to go see her family for a while. And so she took the kids, and, uh, and it never sounds better. And she took the kids, and she's like, I'm gonna, she drove down to California to see some friends and to see her family down in Central California. She's gone for nine days. She said, I'm going to be gone for nine days with the kids. And I may, have, I may have communicated a little too much that I was kind of looking forward to it. Um, she was like, I'm worried. Are you going to be okay? How's it going to go? And I was like, I'm going to be fine. Like, this, I, I basically, the joke is uh, we dated for six years before we got married. Um, I pursued her with everything in me, and then we got married, and I was like, cool. Now just leave me alone, please. I'd like to be alone, right? I'd just like some space. I'd like some time. And she's like, no space. You will get no space. And I'm like, but I want space all the time, right? And so when she says she's leaving with the kids, I'm like, this sounds so great. I will get all this. I'm going to get all this stuff done around the house. I'm going to have some me time, right? I'm going to fall in love with my house again because my kids have ruined it for me. And so for the first three days... It was, it was awesome. It was like, oh my gosh, like I, it was just me and Barry, the dog. It was great. We were like best friends. We were hanging out. Then I kind of started to lose my mind. And uh, I, I found the costume room downstairs here at the church, started putting on costumes. Um, and people were like, okay, this is super weird, but whatever. I was putting on costumes, one a day, and taking pictures and putting them on the internet, because that's not weird. I, uh, I, was, uh, I lost all sense of direction. Like, when do I eat meals? And I don't even, I mean, I, it's not like, like, like Ellie's the only one in charge of that, but for some reason, there was no bedtime, there was no food, there was like no reason to do anything a certain way. So then I was just like, you know, I had no, I was aimlessly, I lost all sense of self and identity whatsoever. And then I'm like, okay, I've got to kind of bring this back somehow. I'm coming up to the end of the first week. I'm like, Pastor Tom had a beach house. Tom and Roberta have a beach house. So I call Tom and I go, hey, can I use your beach house? Are you there? And he said, yeah, you can use the beach house. So I go to his beach house and I'm like, this sounds good. Because a lot of people were asking me through the week. They're like, hey, are you going to go on some kind of a retreat? And I'm like, yes, that sounds like the kind of thing a pastor should do. So I'm going to go on a spiritual retreat. So I go to the beach. If you were going to make a movie and the movie had to have a depressing scene about a person, it would be a guy alone walking on a beach with like no one with him just being sad and that's what it ended up being. It turns out I shouldn't have gone to the beach is what I'm saying. I went to the beach, I thought it was gonna be great, I wake up and I'm just wandering in this overcast beach alone, depressed. Everyone else at least had a dog with them on the beach and one dog wouldn't leave me alone, it was barking at me. So I was like alone on a beach being chased by this dog that just kept barking at me. The guy's like, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. I was like, it's fine, I'm like miserable anyway. And. <laughs> 
I was like so, I was just, I, and, and, and she could tell, I was like sending her video messages and stuff. She could tell I was slowly unraveling as a human being and she was getting more and more worried about me. There was a point where I had an eye appointment at the eye doctor and I get my eyes dilated and, and I like sent her a video. I was like, hey, I can't, I can't really do anything else. I can't even text because I, uh, my eyes are dilated. And she's like, why are, your, why are you getting your eyes dilated? Like, what are you doing? What is happening? So I don't even know why she was freaked out about that, but she just thought I had gone into so much despair that I was like randomly getting my eyes dilated and going to doctor's appointments I didn't need to go to, you know? Like it was some thing that the kids are doing now is they're getting their eyes dilated on the streets. And so I, oh my gosh, so I finally, sorry, my eyes are dilated. Uh, so, I, so I finally, like my friend, I'm, I'm talking to him on the phone and I'm on the beach and I'm depressed and I'm sad. I haven't even made it a week. I'm five days in. And he feels so bad for me, he buys me a plane ticket to fly down to see my family down in California and then to drive back up with them. And so after church that Sunday, I get on a plane and I fly down and I surprise her and I see her. Now, I am convinced that this was all some diabolical plan that Ellie has masterminded to show me once and for all that I don't really want to be alone, and I do want to be around people, and if I'm not, I will fall apart as a human being, because that's exactly what happened. I, 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 I came crawling back. Like, I came crawling back. So, for years, I've been basically saying, like, you know, yeah, you know, I need, I need them, they're great and all, but, you know, I don't need them either, and I could, you know, I'd be happy if I was just on my own, right? And that apparently isn't true. And we do this all the time, right? We do this in relationships. You get in relationships with people, and you go, I need them so much. And then when you kind of have them, you go, oh, man, you know, like, just give me a break, right? The Israelites have this God who's pursuing them so much, and they develop this relationship with him now, right here where we're at, which is like, okay, fine. We can't, we can't really live without him. It seems like we realize that we really do need him and we can't live without him. But we don't know how to live with him because apparently he's holy and we're sinful and how in the world do we make this work? So the people say this is really, really bad news, this idea that God would leave us. And in fact, what God ends up saying to Moses is he says, I'll be with you, Moses, you and me, but not the people. Now, what ends up happening, if you read through the chapters, is the way that they do things from this point on is Moses goes out, he puts together a tent of the meeting place, like a meeting tent, far away from the people. It says all the people come out of their houses and they stand at their door. And they, that's it. They stand at their door and they watch Moses walk out to the, to the wilderness. They watch him set up his tent of meeting. They watch the cloud that is God's presence descend upon the entrance to the tent, and they watch Moses basically interacting with God, and they worship where they're standing. Could you imagine if you were like, woke up this morning and were like, I want to go to church, but I can't. I'm not allowed to even go that close. So I'm going to walk out my front door. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to face whatever direction I think the church is, and I'm going to just worship in my front door because that's the closest I can get. That's what they had to do. They couldn't get any closer than that. They had to watch Moses have a relationship with God that they couldn't have. And this was the terms by which they were going to be able to live. And so this is what Moses does. He says this to God in verse 12. It says, Moses said to the Lord, say, See you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. 
And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It is, not your going, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So this is huge. What Moses says to God here and what the Israelites have now realized is this. Uh, we can have everything that you give us. We can have all the good things. But if we don't have God, then we don't have anything. And Moses has the opportunity to have God. And he says, if these people... He, he describes them as people that he doesn't know. He says, how will I know who they are if you don't tell me, God? How will they know who they are if you don't tell them? How will they know if you don't give them the law and tell them how they're supposed to live? What Moses is saying is that, God, we could have the promised land. They could go out and be a happy people, live good lives. But without being your people, a distinct group of people, who live a certain way that shows who you are, what's the point? Now, this is the question that every person who ever pursues God has to ask. The question that every person who walks into a church has to ask. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? If you're a follower of Jesus, why am I following Jesus? Am I following him because of what it brings me? because of the life that it gives me, of the things that I get for it, or am I following him? Am I seeking God for God himself? Because that's what Moses is arguing for. Moses is saying, you can give us the promised land flowing with milk and honey, but without you, what does it matter? What will we have? Yes, the land is an inheritance, but God himself is an inheritance. God himself is the eternal inheritance. This is such a hard question to ask ourselves. Why do I relate to the church? Why am I here? Why do I pursue Jesus if I try to pursue Jesus? Is it because of the benefits that the church brings? Do I want a place to hang out? Do I want a group of people to help me out? Do I want forgiveness that Christians talk about, but I don't really want God? Do I want the blessings, the life, the good things? Do I want the relationships and the quality of that? Do I want to be right in a world where I think everyone else is wrong? Is that what I want or do I want God? We wake up in the morning and you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be a Christian. Why would you say that? Is it because you say, I want God himself or is it, you know, it's a good life. It's a good approach. It's a good way to do it. They're valuable things to hear and learn, to teach my kids, to apply to my life and my marriage, to help me work harder at my job and all these different things. The people themselves have realized we could get the promised land. We could build a nation of people. We could finally be completely free, and they finally got into a point this far into Exodus where they've said, it's not enough, and it's not good if we don't have God. We want God more than we want the promised land. 
this is a huge deal for the Israelites. For them to finally get to this point that God's been trying to bring them to for so long. So he goes on and he tells them then. And Moses says, if, if, if they can't have you, I'm not going to have you. I'm going to fight for these people to have you because I know that they'll never know who they are as a people if they don't have you in their presence. And so God then says, okay, fine. So he starts to, again, give him ways that they are to live. And there's a reason he does. He first tells them how they're to actually even take over the promised land. In chapter 34, he says, behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear it down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. So what he's saying to him is he's saying, as you enter into this land, I'm not going to give you an untouched land. You're not going to land on some deserted desert island, paradise, and you get to just build your own Lord of the Flies world starting from scratch. He says, I'm going to actually bring you into a land that other people live in, and you're going to drive those people out. And as you do, you must destroy the gods. You must destroy the very culture itself, because if you don't, it will then become your culture. And he goes on and he tells them that they are to celebrate festivals. He says, I want you to celebrate the days of unleavened bread, the feast of unleavened bread, which is a reminder to them that when they left Egypt, they left in such a hurry that their bread couldn't rise. It's a reminder of God rescuing them. He says, so I want you to get rid of the old culture to form your new one with me. I want you to celebrate the things I've done. Remember that I rescued you. He also tells them to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which basically is when you bring in all your harvest and all the stuff that you've received, that you've grown, that you're about to benefit from. I want you to stop and celebrate who gave it to you, that it's me. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to sacrifice your firstborn animals, things like that. And I want you to remember that it's me. Why does he do all of this? Why, in the end, is there so much rule? Are there so many rules? Why are there so many festivals? Why are there so many ways that they are supposed to do things? And there's a reason, and it's a simple reason. It's the core of all of this. It's because this law that God gives gives these people identity. He says, I'm, I'm going to tell you who you are. This is who you are. Cultures are shaped by stories, stories that we believe. Stories that we ascribe to ourselves. And that story that you take on becomes your identity. Who you are as a person is rooted in the stories that are associated with you. And what God is saying to Moses, and he's been saying to his people up till now, is I'm giving you an identity. I'm telling you who you are. And what Moses said in the beginning here is so true. How can I even know who these people are if you don't tell me? I don't know how many of us could actually honestly say that that's the way we see ourselves. That we would say, God, I don't know who I am unless you tell me. In fact, I think one of the most offensive things that you could do is tell someone who they are, right? Instead of allow them the freedom to completely and totally discover that themselves. But what we find is that that journey of self-discovery, that process of discovery is not what the joyful experience that we're told it is. It is not what our world often tells us that it is. It's something really different. These festivals are like sacraments. Sacraments are things that we do to remember. We have sacraments like baptism. 
were baptized, why? Into a new life, because it shows that it doesn't matter who you were, where you were born, what you did, who your family is, all the things you've accomplished, that person's dead, there's a new person now. Your identity is in the fact that you're a part of God's kingdom and his people. We, we, we do the sacrament of like communion. Why do we do that? Because Jesus says, I want you to remember that it's not because of how great you are and all the things that you've done and everything that you've said and all the things that you've earned and all the stuff that you've learned and that you're trying to teach other people. It's what I've done. And you're going to keep forgetting that it's what I've done, so I want you to keep taking communion and remembering, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. Why do we do those things? Because they shape our identity. They tell us who we are, and they tell us who we aren't, which there's just as much freedom in as knowing who we're not supposed to try to be. Every culture has its stories that shape its identity. The law tells us who we are. It tells you who you are. It tells you your story. The story of God's salvation is your story. If you're a follower of Jesus, then the story of God's salvation itself, that's your story. There, that's the answer. That's who you are. You don't have to spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out. That's who you are. What we see here is that God wants a people whose identity is rooted in him, not in them. He wants a group of people not living like everyone else in the world. Every other group of people in the world are going to say our identity is going to be rooted in who we are, the stories that we tell, and he says you're going to be set apart and different. Why? Because you're going to actually be about who I am. And that's going to make you so radically different that I will be glorified, that people will look and say there's something unique. So we go, oh, it's all the rules they follow that makes them different. It's the identity they have that makes them different. It's the fact that everyone else is like, oh, I'm all these different things. And the follower of God is like, no, I'm this one thing. And that's who I am, independent of everything else that I am. You could take all those things away. My identity is not gone because my identity is rooted in something that's bigger than all of that. We exist for a purpose. The Bible tells us this. It says, like, I created you for a reason. The sun exists to give heat. It anchors our, our solar system. A car exists to drive. A rock exists to just sit, I guess. A tree exists to grow and to produce more trees and to produce fruits. How can a tree not do what it's meant to do? How can a rock not do what it's intended to do? How can we possibly be who we are say that we are being who we are without doing what we're intended to do. Ecclesiastes talks all about the toil and the, and the striving in life that we go through to try to achieve this thing. It says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Doesn't that sound encouraging? I have seen all that is done under the sun and all is vanity and is striving after the wind. That generation after generation after generation, a new group of people is born and they go, no, we're going to get it right. We're going to do it. We're going to strive after things and we're going to pursue things and it's going to matter. And generation after generation comes later and says, it's a striving after the wind. It is a chasing after something that you cannot really attain. It is a desperate attempt to define yourself and your value by things that ultimately will let you down. When I was a, a youth pastor, I discovered, much to my delight, 
that we live 45 minutes away from the world's biggest corn maze. And when you're a youth pastor and you find that out, that's a good day for you. World's biggest corn maze. So we went to the world's biggest corn maze, and we just were like, all right, uh, you know, here we are. We're in the corn maze. There's like 30 of us. And uh, we're like, let's just have some fun in the corn maze, you know? And so we walk through, and oh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go here. You don't really get a sense of what the world's biggest corn maze means until you've been wandering it for an hour. And, and, and everybody's done pushing each other into the corn and jumping out of it and scaring each other and trying to sneak off together and like playing jokes on each other and stuff. And it's all not fun anymore. And you're like, we have to make this a serious business now because we are stuck in the middle of the world's biggest corn maze. We're lost. They gave us a map, but the map is the hardest maze you've ever been given. And you have to figure that out to figure out where you're at in that to get through the corn maze to get out. And it then turns into like an hour of just like focused, desperate, like we have to figure out a way to get out. And every time we did it, every time we got home like two and a half hours late and the parents were furious with me because we got lost in the corn maze, you know? This is the approach that we take much of life. We go, oh, it'll be fine. I'm just going to kind of wander my way in, and I will figure it out as I go, right? I'm going to figure it out as I go. In fact, it's important that I be able to figure it out as I go, right? Heaven forbid someone else has figured something out, or I, you know, there's something else that somebody knows that could help me or whatever. I'm gonna, it's important that I enter into this thing, and I get it myself. And then we get hopelessly lost much of the time. And we end up, many of us, like halfway through life maybe, going, where am I and what is going on? And this does not feel right. And I will say that one of the saddest things ever is the number of people I know who are desperately pursuing that sense of what is going on here? Who am I? What am I supposed to really be doing here? Only to find out that they don't really have a satisfying answer to that. Even somebody who's following Jesus that you can follow Jesus and you can be a part of God's kingdom and you can still be desperately wandering your way through this maze of life going, I don't really know like how to actually feel good about this because I don't feel it. And I don't feel like this idea of identity is something that I'm very well rooted in. This was easier in developing cultures where people were trying to build societies because you had a job. It's like, here's my job, here's my role. I catch fish, we need to eat fish. One day we'll figure out a better way, but in the meantime, this is all I'm gonna do every day, and I feel like I know my place in this thing. But once cultures had developed and societies had developed to a certain point, we then began to reflect. And it began, you see it start with the Greeks. The unexamined life is a life not worth living, right? Let's, we've got some time now, we've got some space. Somebody figured out a better way to catch fish, so I only have to spend half my time doing it now. Let's just kind of figure this out. Let's think about it. Let's examine it. Let's examine this thing called life. Then you add on to that individualistic cultures like the one in which we live in the Western world. Now not only do I need to examine life for myself and figure it out, but mine has to be a distinct and individual and unique life when compared to all other lives. It has to be like a special life. Rising above the pack distinguishing itself from others in some way or another. Otherwise, I honestly feel like there was no point to me being here. We were created by God as people that were driven ultimately by a pursuit of joy. The Bible tells us that God created us to glorify him, to enjoy him, to take joy in him. And so taking joy Having an identity in something that brings us ultimate joy and fulfillment is as much of a need as food and water and sleep and all the other things. 
C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, our desires all correspond to some aspect of reality. We desire sex because there is sex. We desire food because there is food. We desire water because there is water. And we desire the divine because he is there. So the Bible tells us that to, to, to pursue God is to bring us a kind of joy and, we see in Exodus, an identity that can be found nowhere else. This is one of the reasons why suffering teaches us a lot. Because suffering usually involves losing things that we have been finding our identity in. And as those things are lost or compromised, as what was once the perfect marriage isn't that, as what was once the perfect family isn't that, as what was once the perfect health or a life full of future change by one thing or another isn't that, we then are forced, we have no choice, we're forced to reevaluate what is my identity in. Now, the Bible says that your identity is in certain things, that God actually calls us certain things and tells us certain things. Basically, the Bible's like, this is figured out. You don't have to strive. You don't have to wander. You don't have to be confused and alone. The Israelites, they could have gone and built their own nation without God, but they would have been ultimately a people without an identity. They would have been a people without a purpose and a reason for even being there. Because God is the one who gives that to us. He's the one who names us and tells us who we are. The Bible says that, that we are a child of God. It says you're known, you're loved, you're accepted. It says you're a priest. It says you're a bride of Christ. It says you're a friend to God. It even says that we're aliens, we're sojourners. The Bible tells us that we even don't really fully belong in this world that we're currently living in, but we belong in another one. Now, there are things in our lives that are indications of all of these that tell us, yes, there's a reason that I would feel like that's something that I need. But this is so radically different from the way that we approach identity. We approach identity in the things that describe us, not the ways that God tells us who we are. We look at a, we, we describe ourselves, instead of describing ourselves the things, we say that has to be who I am. You become a mother, that's your identity. You become a father, that's your identity. You get a job, that's your identity. You fall in love with someone, that's your identity. You're attracted to someone, that's your identity. People think of you a certain way, good or bad, that becomes your identity. And you're trapped by those things much of the time. And the ability to not pursue those things wholeheartedly makes us feel like we're being robbed of the ability to pursue our identity, even though those things often totally conflict with one another. You may not know this, but the human heart is a deceptive thing. The human heart can want two things at once. It can want pure, true love and lots of money. And both the only way in life to achieve those two things might be two different paths, but your heart doesn't know that. And so your heart says, no, give me what I want. And you go, I can't give you what you want, heart, all the time, because you don't want things that make sense all the time, that work with each other. We would say that my identity is in my gender, but it's not. We would say my identity is in who I love and who I'm attracted to, but it's not. We would say my identity is in my job, my calling, the thing that I do, the way that I achieve, the way that I distinguish myself, but it's not. We would say that my identity is in the place I live, it's in the country I live in, it's in my nation and, and my government and my culture, but it's not. That's not what our identity is rooted in. These are mere descriptors of who we are. God says, 
You're these other things. That's who you are. And the question is, do we choose to believe that or not? Now, there's all kinds of reasons why we would not want to believe that, because we really do enjoy the freedom to be able to determine who we are independent of God, just like the Israelites did. But when we won't listen to this, we begin to believe things and hear things and live by things that are just complete lies. Basically, if your identity isn't in God, you will ultimately be sick in some way or another. And you'll know that there's a sickness because you'll feel it. You'll think it. You'll hear voices and lies. Because if we're not really living according to who God's made us to be, then that means that we're living at sometimes believing things that are, that are lies about who we are and what we are. Like there are these things, these incredibly negative, destructive things that just run in the background of our minds so much for many of us. It can be as simple as I'm not good enough. You just believe it all the time. It's who you are. It's how you feel. It's how you feel about yourself. I'm not good enough. And it's so there all the time that you don't even think about it anymore. You just constantly feel that way. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, no, I'm not good enough. I've never been good enough. Maybe I'll be good enough one day, and I'm going to try as hard as I can, but I'm not. I am a failure. And God says, no, you're not. He says, you're my child. He says, I love you, and I've accepted you, and I've chosen you, and I've called you by name. You don't have to go around believing the lie that says, I'm not good enough, and I should feel bad about that. I've not done enough. I just haven't done enough. I haven't accomplished enough. I haven't proven enough. I haven't achieved enough. I haven't distinguished myself enough. I haven't set myself apart enough from all these other losers around me. And until I do, I won't be enough. To which God says, I have given you the single most important job that exists on this planet. I have called you to be a priest, and I've told you that you're qualified. I've given you the Holy Spirit. Jesus left. He said, Jesus like, guys, I'm going to leave. And believe it or not, you're going to do this thing called the church, and God's going to use you as priests to reach people. And don't worry, he's going to give you the Holy Spirit, and that's going to be a really good thing. You have literally been given the most significant and important job that exists in eternity, well, that exists in this life now, here. And that, and that success and accomplishment in that job, in any measure whatsoever, will reverberate into eternity. You don't have anything, you don't have any reason that you need to believe this lie that you haven't done enough and that if you don't live a life of great accomplishment and achievement and distinction from other people, that, that you won't really have made it worth it, that you won't have really proven yourself. We feel bad. We just feel guilty. This is one of the most common ones. I talk to so many people, so much of the time, who just feel guilty all the time. They just feel shame all the time. It's running there in the background. I don't know. Whatever it is, I feel bad. It's like their, their response to everything. I feel guilty. I feel bad. I feel guilty. I feel bad. I feel like I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done it this way. I'm sure somehow it's me. It's somehow it's what I've done. And we feel those things because overall we think I'm just always like going to be guilty. I'm always going to be needing to be ashamed of something that I've done some way that I haven't measured up. And the Bible says you are a saint, which means when God looks at you, he is pleased with what he sees. And it says that you are the bride of Christ. 
Jesus has said, I choose to be united with you. I choose you. I pick you. I want to be with you. You don't need to walk around feeling guilty and shameful all the time. It's a lie. You're believing something that's just simply not true of you anymore. And a lot of us walk around and we just believe things just don't feel like they are the way they should be. I'm trying as hard as I can to live the best life that I can to do all the right things and it isn't working. This world isn't working, no matter how hard I try. Now, there's different ways that we can handle this. One is we just get really mad at the world and that's what most people do. That's what most Christians do. You get really mad at the world and we go, I'm mad that the world isn't the way it used to be, the way that it should be, the people aren't figuring out the right way to live. I'm upset about that, and that needs to change. And if we can fix that, then we'll be better, and I can feel good about the life I'm trying to build here. But that feeling that things aren't the way they should be is because the Bible says you are an alien in a foreign land. You are a sojourner who is passing through. This is not... Your, your home. So if it feels off, that's why. And it doesn't mean you don't care about it and you don't care about the people in it and you're not invested in it, but it does explain a lot. So you can go around feeling all the time this sense of, oh, I do not like what I see and what I'm experiencing in this world, but don't think that that's any different from what God tells us in the Bible because he says, you're a sojourner. Don't expect to feel too comfortable in this life. And honestly, what I would say to that is if you feel really, really, really comfortable in this life, then what does that mean, right? If you have done such a great job of putting down the best roots and building the best life and and trying as hard as you can to make it all work out as good as it can, if you send out a Christmas card every year and all you can do is think about how great and perfect it's all gone according to the plans that you have, If you don't feel at all like an alien, a sojourner, someone who is not in a land that is theirs, then what does that say about what land is yours? I think that's hard for many of us. The fact is, there's this this like sketch comedy thing that somebody showed me a few weeks back that I'd seen before. Um, I think it's Bob Newhart. And uh, it's a guy sitting at a desk. He's like a counselor and somebody walks in and she tells him all of her problems and he goes, okay, I can solve all your problems in two words. Have you guys ever seen this? He says, stop it. He goes, stop it. And she goes, okay, well, you don't understand, but the thing is, you go, oh, okay, 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 yeah, okay. stop it. And he just keeps saying, stop it. That's all he says. And uh, if you're like a therapist or a counselor, you find great satisfaction in that because a lot of people who are counselors and therapists are just like, I wish I could just tell this person to stop believing all these things that aren't true and aren't good for them. That's the way it is. We will like believe this stuff so much that it shapes us into who we are. And God sees that and goes, stop it. Just snap out of it. Just knock it off because it's not true. And we are consumed with things that are not true about us. We are consumed with them. And we are weighed down by them and we are slaves to them. And what God tells his people is he's like, I'm going to tell you exactly who you are and it will give you a reason to to rejoice. And your identity is rooted in me, something that cannot be taken away. Your house is built on the rock, not the sand. And when the waves and the storm comes up against you, nothing will knock it over. And so you don't have to fear. Now, apart from saying this, in a lot of different encouraging ways in the Bible, the Bible also warns us with this very same message about who we are and how we should be living. 
that you can have everything in the world, and if you are not with God, and if your identity is not in him, then what do you really have? And he, Jesus gives it to us in the form of warnings, very big warnings. A couple of years ago, I, uh, I heard a noise in the middle of the night. I walked out of my bedroom door, and uh, uh, right down at the end of my hall where our garage door is, there's a cat door. There were two of the biggest raccoons I've ever seen in my hallway. And I was like, what? And so they run out really fast, and I turn the hallway light on, and I chase them out in the garage, and I go out in the garage. One of them stands up, and I was like, okay, this thing is like, I'm not messing with this. And they took off, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. So I call, like, the city. I'm like, can you send a guy out here? They're like, well, it is, like, cat food. Yeah, there's cat food. Well, then you're luring them. We can't come take them. You can't do anything to them because technically you're luring them into your house. I'm like, all right, great. So I get somebody to give me a trap. And like most things that I do, I stop at one point, and I go, I'll bet this would be even more fun if I had the mindset of a six-year-old. So I bring my son in and I go, Tegan, let's trap a raccoon. And he goes, okay, this is awesome. And so we set the trap, we put some cat food in it because, you know, they love cat food. And we put it out there out in our side yard and we set it all up, we put a towel over it and everything and we wait, you know. And then the next morning we get up at 5.30, like in the morning, so early, you know. And he's like, let's go see what's in the trap, let's go see what's in the trap. We go see it and it's like, closed and we're like, oh man, here it is. And we get real close, you know, we get super close, you know, we're being all quiet and we lift up the towel and it's a huge skunk. <laughs> and we, I have never moved that fast in my entire life. Now, I have never been sprayed by a skunk, I'm happy to say, but I move faster than I have ever moved in my entire life. How many of you have ever been sprayed by a skunk? No, no one? Okay. How many of you are afraid of being sprayed by a skunk? <laughs> Interesting, right? That we're all so afraid of something that we've never experienced, that has never happened to us. Why? Because when people get sprayed by skunks, they let us all know what that's like, right? <laughs> and we know that the last thing that we would ever want to have happen to us, it seems, is to be sprayed by a skunk. We have been given warnings about this. And when the warning is strong enough and clear enough, then you get the picture and you are afraid of the thing, even if it's not something that you've yet experienced, which is unusual for people, right? We're kind of dumb. We have to experience the foolishness of something much of the time in order to take it seriously. Not with skunks, right? This is why in the New Testament, when Jesus warns people about things, he does it with these big flashing lights. He tells stories and metaphors and examples so that we will get exactly how serious it is. And there's a point in Matthew 14 where Jesus talks about a dragnet. He tells a parable. And he says, listen, here's how it's going to be at the end of the age, okay? There's going to be a big gathering of everybody up, like a bunch of fish in a net. And the fishermen, who's God, will sort through them. And there will be good fish... You should want to be that. And there will be bad fish. Now, the word bad used there is sapros, which means something that is decayed from its original state. It can't be used. It's not useful to the fishermen. And so there are fish that are good. And according to this parable, a good fish is one that is useful. And what is a useful fish but one that is actually doing what it's intended to do? And the bad fish is the one that is unuseful. So not only is he saying, oh guys, your identity is rooted in this, it's who you are, it helps you realize who you were always created and meant to be and you can live a life of fulfillment and knowing that, but he also says, by the way, if you don't get it, you will perish. It's that serious. So it's more than just knowing who we are. It's having life itself at all. One of my like, favorite movies ever is the movie Toy Story. I love it. And I love the movie Toy Story because of, 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 of what makes it 
Well, what I love about the movie, I, heard the st I read the story once about how it came about. They were making the first computer animated film, and uh, this guy, John Lasseter, who had the idea to make the movie, he goes and he says, I wanna make a movie about toys, and uh, they're toys that aren't getting played with anymore. And somebody's like, that doesn't sound very interesting. You know, like at all, really. That doesn't sound like a great movie. And the guy had a glass of water on his desk, and he took the glass of water, and he said, this glass of water exists for one reason only. It is to hold water for you to drink out of, right? And then he dumps it out in a plant, and he goes, this glass of water now has no reason for being. It's not being used for its purpose. He said, he said if toys only exist to be played with by children, I want to make a movie about a bunch of toys that a kid decides maybe I don't want to play with anymore. Because all human beings can connect to the fear and the idea of being created for something and knowing that you can't do it. Knowing that you can't really be who you were meant to be. That this is such a profound thing that we connect with that when I went and saw Toy Story 3 a while ago, people were sobbing in the theater at the end of like a Pixar movie. I mean, like, heaving up and down, like, ugly crying in the theater. You would think it was like the end of some epic war movie, but it wasn't. It was Toy Story 3, and the kid was dealing with his toy issues. And people were losing it because we just can't handle it. The idea of that. The idea that you're created for something, you're meant to do something, and you know what it is, which means doing it brings you joy in life. And you would instead say, you know what, I'm going to focus on everything else instead of having my identity be in that thing. That it's one of the biggest tragedies ever. I think that there's, it's so incredibly important to us as we even begin to wrap up this series that we recognize that the Israelites got it. They got to a point where they said we could have the promised land, we could have all the good things that God gives us, but if we don't have God, we don't know who we are. And I will say that one of the values of the culture in which we live is the place that we give to knowing who you are. We place, no, we place, like that's the top value for us. I need to know who I am. I need to be able to live in light of that. And so we can relate better than anyone with the idea of you can come to church and you can follow Jesus and you can try to be a good person, you could try to do all of those things. You could take and benefit from all the good things that God gives you and pray for more of those things. But if you don't want God himself for who he is, then really what do you have? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for who you are, for the fact that you go to such great lengths to not only tell us who we are, but to warn us with what happens if we don't embrace that, Lord. We confess to you that we don't want to be told who we are much of the time, that we want to decide it for ourselves. And yet we stumble and we fumble through life, trying to prove and figure out something that you've already shown us, Lord. I pray that just as much as we want to be a group of people who are characterized by gratefulness, that we would be a group of people who are characterized as having our identity in something distinct from who we love and the roles that we have in life and the jobs that we do and the ways that people see us, Lord. I pray, we pray that our identity would be rooted in you, God. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, you tell us again and again in your word that that is true, that... All other ground is sinking sand and we struggle to believe it because often life is going well and we 
um, don't have to think about that, Lord. But God, we, we see the truth of your words, that it is true that ultimately the only thing that stands up is you. The only thing that lasts is you, that you're the author, or the perfecter, the creator of us and our faith. And, and we recognize, Lord, and we pray that knowing that the most important thing is the way that we see you that you don't call us just to see ourselves less or to think bad things about ourselves, that, but instead you call us to see you more and to have a higher view of you and that you, the God who says in Revelation that at the end of the age that the rulers of the world will cry out in fear wishing that the mountains and rocks would crush them to simply hide from you because you're so big and you're so terrifying in scope, that that is the God that we serve and that we aren't to be afraid of you but that we are instead to find our identity in you, the only thing that lasts, Lord. That is our prayer, that we would do that, that this would give us perspective, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.